Okay, I just, I just, I just want to interject that we're not all that cool, and in, in fact, the parties <laughs> that I get invited to, that I, I would not characterize them that way. But I, I'm sorry, I just needed to put that marker down, and now I will let you continue with your answer. <laughs> well, you always should speak for himself. When I was in my twenties, uh, I, I, yes, also I went to those same kind of parties. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, scale of one to 10, how excited are you about today's guest? Uh, you know, like Spinal Tap, I don't think the, the my excitement level would reach 10. I think we have to go to 11 for how excited I am today. Uh, and normally we'd have chit chat, but I don't want to, I don't want to chat with you at all, UL. I just want to spend all the time chatting with our special guest, very special guest, Dr. Carl Hart. Um, Carl Hart is the Ziff Professor of Psychology in Psychiatry at Columbia University, where he's also served as the chair uh, for a number of years, uh, thankfully in the past, uh, I take it. Um, uh, Carl received his PhD in neuroscience in 1996 from the University of Wyoming, and before that, his Bachelor of Science from the University of Maryland. Before his academic path, Carl served in the United States Air Force, which paved his way to higher education. Carl has published many articles uh, detailing the behavioral and neuropharmacological effects of psychoactive drugs in human research participants. He's interested in recreational drug use, but also dispelling myths about drug addiction. Carl has written uh, two books. His first book is called High Price, A Neuroscientist's Journey of Self-Discovery That Challenges Everything You Know About Drugs and Society, notably that won the Penn E. O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. And he wrote a second book that was just published very, very recently called Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear, where we learn, uh, among other things, that Carl is entering his fifth year as a regular heroin user. Um, and, and of note, uh, uh, Carl was the first tenured African-American professor of sciences at Columbia University. So welcome to the show, Carl. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are. As as you well mentioned, we are we are super excited. This like, uh, I didn't realize this, uh, uh, Carl. I hope I can call call you Carl. I and mean, we've you just met. Please, uh, no, absolutely. Please come on. Excellent. Um, you know, I didn't realize this, but I was like meant to read this book. This is this is like I've been looking for a book like this for such a long time. I'm referring, of course, to your most recent book, Drug Use for Grownups. Um, it's just fabulous, and we'll get all into it, uh, you know, in the uh, you know over the course of the show. But you know, very quickly, it's about um, about race. It's about uh, music. It's about drugs, of course, and uh, it's about liberty. It's just like a, a, an amazing package. I highly recommend it. Uh, so all our listeners should check it out. Um, but before we get really deep into things, uh, we of course are a show where we uh, engage in one drug use. Uh, we drink beer. Um, so, uh, UL, are you actually, are you, are you still on a beer boycott or are you, uh, are you? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I still don't feel like drinking beer. So I'm, I'm still with the makers, which we're, which I was drinking, uh, last week when we recorded, I haven't finished that bottle yet. Although I've put a dent in it. I guess our listeners can't see this. I've, I've taken down roughly half, I would say, um, not, not all in one session. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm on tonight. Just a little, uh, makers, no ice. Excellent. And, um, and Carl, uh, you are, you're going to abstain, I think, right? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I just didn't uh, realize that I should have had, uh, 
psychoactive be- beverage, I would have I would have brought something. I'm sorry. Oh, it's all good. It's all good. You would not be our first guest uh, to abstain, um, and we respect that. It's all good. Uh, so I'm drinking uh, something from my local uh, you know, beer store, uh, Collective Arts, uh, in a collaboration with Tooth and Nail. It's called a Frisch, which is a German pale ale. Um, so I, I imagine it's probably going to be like a like a Kolsch or something like that. So um, cheers, Joel, and uh, thank you so much, Carl, for, for being on our show. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Cheers. All right, Mickey, I can tell you're, you're just so excited to get to the questions. So shall we just dive in? Yeah, I think we should just dive in. Um, all right, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and ask you the first question. Um, so this is a question we ask uh, pretty much of all our guests. Um, our academic guest. So can you just please tell us about your academic journey? Um, so what was your life like growing up? Um, you know, how did you decide to pursue a PhD? And why did you end up pursuing uh, a PhD in neuroscience and, and pharmacology? Uh, and then finally, you know, how, how, is your, how have your early years influenced your work? Uh, yeah, so I'm, a, I'm an unlikely academic. Uh, I thought that I would probably be, be a professional athlete or something. That seemed like the only thing that was available uh, in the place like where I grew up um, and in Miami. Um, uh, but uh, I went to the U.S. Air Force, uh, went to college in the Air Force, um, and uh, at the time people were concerned about crack cocaine addiction. Um, and so I figured that one way to contribute to my community was to study the brain um, and figure out how drugs produce their sort of addictive effects on the brain. And if I could uh, cure drug addiction, then maybe I could uh, solve some of the problems um, that I thought were uh, caused by drug addiction. Uh, but of course, after 30 years or so of studying this, uh, uh, I realized that I got hoodwinked and I misattributed the problems uh, to drugs when in fact they were caused by things that we all know, like uh, lack, of op- lack of opportunity, unemployment, um, racism, a wide range of things. Um, but um, I got educated in the process and I learned a little something about the brain and a little something about pharmacology. Right. So, so you actually, you know, pursued this path specifically because you wanted to study addiction. That's right. I wanted to study addiction. I wanted to solve the problem of addiction. So uh, maybe this is a, a good segue to, you know, how you went from kind of having these orthodox views about drug use and addiction at the beginning of your career. In fact, that being the kind of inspiration for your career to, your views changing. So how did that happen for you? Uh, so my views changed uh, over the course of a long career. <laughs> I just kept bumping up against inconsistent evidence uh, with my sort of thinking. Um, for example, I thought that most of the people who use crack cocaine were addicted. Um, turns out um, um, as much as 80% of the people who use crack are, are not addicted. Um, and the vast majority of people who use that drug um, have no problem. Um, and I also realized uh, from studying uh, people uh, in the lab, uh, people who had been diagnosed with crack addiction, other kind of drug addictions, uh, were some of the most reliable people. Um, they were responsible. We placed all kind of demands on their schedules and they met. Uh, these demands. And so again, that shattered some of the myths that I held 
about the people who use drugs. Um, and so uh, uh, all of this information that I, that I continue to bump up against uh, forced me uh, to align my view with the evidence. And that's how we get here now today. So I'm going to, uh, sorry, Mickey, uh, one more. And this is sort of like deviating from uh, the way we had the questions written out, but I just want to pursue this right now because I can imagine that there's listeners listening to this podcast right now being like, it, this is just, I don't get it, right? Like, I know that drug addiction has these terrible costs and that drug addicts do these socially destructive things. And how can you be saying that it isn't so. So like what, I mean, this must be a reaction that you get all the time making this kind of argument. Like what do you say to somebody who has that reaction? Uh, the, in terms of, uh, so the thing that, the main thing that people get wrong is that they seem, they seem to think that drugs are the cause of drug addiction. And drugs, uh, drug addiction almost has nothing to do with drugs. It has almost everything to do with psychosocial sort of uh, environment in, uh, in which people are operating. It has a lot to do with the kind of unrealistic expectations some people are, uh, uh, are, are placed on some people. It has some, uh, uh, sometimes something to do with the fact that people are, have been shut out economically or they have once been included economically and now they are not included. It has to do with all of these factors, more so than the drugs themselves. And so when we start to figure that out or look at those sort of factors, then we can start to solve problems related to drug addiction. Um, um, and that's the m most important thing that I try to help people to understand. And, and you know this because no matter what the drug is, the vast majority of the users are not addicted. That tells you you have to look beyond the drug. And just to be clear, uh, how is addiction defined in the field? Yeah, uh, the way I'm using addiction is uh, uh, consistent with uh, the DSM-5's definition or the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. Um, also, um, uh, the International Classification of Disorders also uses this, this, uh, this def definition. And that definition is simply this. Uh, uh, the person has some sort of disruptions in their function in their functioning as a result of their drug use. And that person is disturbed by these sort of psychosocial disruptions. Um, like for example, um, someone may have been trying to quit or cut down their use unsuccessfully on, an, on several occasions. Um, they may use more than they had planned on, on several occasions. There's a list of about 11 symptoms that people can endorse. And when they endorse a certain number, then we say that they meet criteria for a drug addiction. Uh, but it's important that the person themselves are distressed by these symptoms. Because you can imagine if somebody, someone is not meeting a major obligation, like say, for example, uh, a holiday uh, celebration with their family, they, they don't show up. Um, and then it turns out their family are Trump supporters and they don't want to be around their family. Uh, the family might be upset and the family might say, see, you have a problem because you're doing cocaine. It's like, then the person may say, I'd rather do cocaine than to talk with you all about some person who I load. And so that's not a problem. 
uh, even though the, pam- the family may think that's a problem. So the person, it's important that the person themselves sees this as a problem. Right. So, so to be clear, you know, you can distinguish this from physical dependence, right? So just to take a super like everyday example, I have coffee every day. If I skip coffee, I don't feel good, right? I get a headache. So in a, I am physically dependent on caffeine, but you wouldn't consider that an addiction because I like coffee. If it's into my day well, I enjoy having it and so on. Well, just think about this. Uh, there are people who are taking antidepressant medications and they have been taking them for, I don't know, several months, several years. And if those people uh, discontinue abruptly their uh, use of antidepressants, they will have some withdrawal symptoms. That, that is certainly physical dependence. But we wouldn't say those people are addicted to um, uh, antidepressant medication. So simply because someone has a physical dependence doesn't mean that they meet criteria for addiction. And, and what role does craving uh, play? So, I mean, I imagine the, the strong desire for, for the drug. Um, is that also a key component of addiction? Yeah, craving is one of those 11 symptoms that I, I, I laid out. Uh, if people endorse that one along with some others, then they can meet criteria for addiction. I personally don't like the fact that craving is included in those symptoms because craving uh, doesn't determine or doesn't predict how much someone will use. You can crave strongly. And then when given an opportunity to use the drug, you won't, it it won't necessarily predict how much you will use. I think about me, I give lectures all the time and sometimes um, I haven't had a chance to eat. And so sometimes I crave doing a lecture, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to forgo that lecture and just leave the people there uh, because I'm craving to eat. Uh, and so I, I think that craving is a, is, a, is a horrible symptom that's included. And that's a symptom that's only um, uh, was included in DSM-5. So I hope we get rid of that symptom. Um, so sticking with with craving a little bit, um, or even the, maybe the term uh, addiction more broadly, it seems to be applied more and more to more things. So, so I think one that we hear a lot about uh, these days is addiction to social media or or the internet. Um, but this would not, you know, these of course would not meet formal criteria of addiction whatsoever. Am, am I correct in that regard? Um, now you, we, you certainly, if it's disruptive, the person is distressed by it. You certainly can think of it in, in that way. If, if they meet these criteria, uh, sure. We can think of, uh, 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 games. We can think of gambling. We can think of a number of things in that way. Um, you can even think about, uh, some people at work. I know I worked so much. Um, uh, I certainly have thought about my sort of work life in terms of uh, uh, being addicted, but nobody would say that because uh, in these capitalistic societies, we rather you work than to spend time with your family, in fact. So that's encouraged. That kind of pathology is encouraged. That's interesting. So right there, in some way, like, um, the, the moral values are baked in to, to what we consider an addiction or not. So by formal definitions, working might be an addiction to many, many people, but we never call it that because, of course, it's socially valued. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So, okay, I want to get back to to you know uh, you, you know the way you um, you know you you kept on looking at the data and and, lo- and looking at the data and then seeing you know where are all the negative effects, where are all the negative effects that that people are talking about. Now, you know, I, I I totally buy what you're saying, but I'm struck, and I don't know this literature that well, but I'm struck by what you might see in the literature, 
right? Where there's an emphasis on, you know, the addicted brain and, and look, this is, you know, this is the brain on cocaine, um, et cetera. So why is the literature, you know, different than what, what you're describing right now? Um, so if you look at the literature, for example, if you think about work that like the work I do, we bring people into the lab and then we give them various doses of drugs, cocaine, marijuana, methamphetamine, and we test the effects of these drugs in these people. So you look at the literature and you see that these people are overwhelmingly having a good time or the effects produced by the drugs are positive. Um, and that's in the literature. Uh, you look at the data, it's, it's all there. But the thing that we emphasize in the literature are the negative effects. So it's where we place the emphasis. The data are there and the data do not lie. Uh, it's just we as researchers, we are sometimes biased in our interpretations influence what we as a society think about these things. That's interesting. So, um, you know, uh, one of the, the topics we cover a lot in the podcast is uh, the so-called replication crisis in psychology and in, in broader science, um, which, of course, you know, uh, describes lots of things. But one of the things it describes is, you know, uh, publication bias, right? The, the notion that, you know, uh, negative results won't get published. If, if you, so, I, ima you know, I imagine if you ran a, a study comparing drug A to drug B or drug A against a placebo and don't find negative results for the drug, especially if it's a, you know, a, a narcotic, um, you might have a tougher time getting published. Is that, is that been your experience that like, you know, the editors and journals are shaping what, what, what gets out there or, or am I just kind of, uh, uh projecting a bit? Um, it all depends what work we're talking about. So, uh, if you're talking about work where we actually give drugs to people in the lab, um, that's not so much an issue. But when you think about something like brain imaging, it's um, that comes into play more there. Uh, with the brain imaging studies, you start to find that there's this uh, uh, conspicuous bias in finding negative effects or negative uh, uh, results. Uh, what I'm not saying, uh, yeah, negative effects of the drugs is what I'm saying. Um. All right. And then, uh, so I, I want to get back to, I, I kind of follow up to that, but, uh, I couldn't help but notice in, in, in your book that you, you had a, you know, a special, maybe, uh, maybe disdain is too strong, but, uh, you seem to have some issues with NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse on drug abuse. So I wonder if you explain, you know, uh, like maybe your relationship with NIDA, how you came to, you know, maybe kind of judge the organization and what do you think they're getting wrong? Um, what do you think they're, how, you know, if you were put in charge, how, how, how would things be different? First of all, I don't think you're being too strong. So I think you are being quite generous. Um, uh, so when we think about NIDA, it's important for people to understand that we're talking about the National Institute on Drug Abuse in the U.S., and they fund more than 90% of the world's research in this area. Um, uh, until recently, their mission was to bring to bear the nation's resources, uh, scientific resources, on problems of drug abuse and drug addiction. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. Um, so that mission focuses exclusively on the harmful, the negative effects of drugs. The overwhelming effects produced by drugs are positive effects. And if you're only focused on the negative effects, when the overwhelming effects are positive, you're going to have a, a, a biased presentation. And when you're so influential about how the world thinks about this subject, 
and you're not careful not to be biased, there is a problem. I know some people, some scientists say, well, it's better to err on the side of caution so that nobody takes these drugs the side of caution. The problem with that sort of thinking is that there is a huge price to pay by erring on the side of caution. That price is that the public has this uh, gross misunderstanding about drugs and they have this view that drugs should be uh, severely restricted and that means that law should be draconian. And that means that we should be putting people in jail when they use them because these things are so dangerous. Uh, and then as a result, we have a number of people being arrested, put in jail for these drugs, not only in the United States, around the world, because in the United States, we influence drug policies of many other nations. And so you can see how we have misled the world. And that's why uh, I am harsh uh, in my critique of NIDA. And I, and I, I have this critique, not from an outsider. And I understand that I was, I sat on NIDA's uh, advisory council. That is, that, that is the group that determines uh, who gets funded for research. Uh, and that's the highest sort of board for, for, for NIDA. So I played the game at the highest level. Um, and it seemed less than honorable not to say something about this uh, gross misrepresentation and this uh, conspicuous bias. Um, and so particularly when uh, people for whom I care, poor people, people color largely, uh, are being negatively impacted by the policies that flow from the sort of ideology that comes out of NIDA. So were you worried at all that very publicly taking this position was going to be bad for your career? As you say, this organization funds like 90% of drug research, right? And you're, you're like poking your finger in their eye. Now they're never going to give you money again. I mean, did, did that fear come up for you at all? Um, so we have to understand that I'm 54 years old and um, I don't really care what um, people Think, as long as I'm not hurting them or I'm not wrongly besmirching them or anything like that. So I do care about people's feelings, particularly when my behavior negatively impact them. But in this case, all I'm doing is uh, trying to live like we claim that we want people to live. Uh, you be as honest as you po possibly can be, particularly when you have some public responsibility. That's all I'm doing. So if someone is upset about that, um, let's see their evidence to uh, contradict what I'm saying. And that's okay, because I am happy to modify my position in the face of better ev ev evidence. Uh, because, you know, I am wrong sometimes. I'm not perfect. I'm human. Uh, but in this case, I think that I'm absolutely right. It's, I've been studying this for a number of years. Um, and so, no, I, I wasn't concerned about uh, NIDA. Um, I, I, I thought that um, uh, what I'm doing is what we claim to say. This is what we claim we want other people to do as well. Um, and uh, obviously, they they're aware of your views. That your book is, is published. I'm sure you've you, you've you've had talks, many many talks about this. So, what has the response been it, it, to the extent that you're aware of it? Um, I 
I, I guess I'm not I'm not aware. I haven't really seen uh, much of a response from them. I don't uh, I haven't really paid much of attention. You know, we're all in a pandemic. I'm trying to uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we get back to our lives so I can get on the road and tour and to give book tar- tours and um, uh, live in, uh, or be in countries that are more free uh, than the U.S. Um, and so. Um, I haven't really. NIDA is not for, for, first and foremost on my mind. Really, I'm 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 trying to like I only have one life, and I know I have fewer days uh, uh, remaining than I have had past. So uh, uh, NIDA is is really low in terms of my priority or or thought process. Those are great set of priorities, man. That's awesome. Um, all right, so I want to talk now. I, I'm not going to lie. So you know, I, I I was very attracted to the book. Uh, but uh, just from the title, and I didn't know tons about it. And I must admit, you know, I was a bit surprised when, like, in the opening pages, you admitted to your own, you know, not, you know, uh, drug use. And not just, you know, okay, now everyone talks about, you know, I'm a, I'm a regular, you know, cannabis user. Now it's very, very popular to talk about um, psychedelics. But you talked about, uh, you know, using heroin um, and other drugs. So uh, I was very surprised by that, but but very also, you know, refreshed and, and thought it was, it, it was great that you were open about it and you and you described it as coming out in some way um so uh, can i just ask you uh you know well maybe first to ask how because it seems like you 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 came to drugs later in life um you grew up you know uh, having a very kind of a say no to drugs attitude that's how you grew up and you thought that was a blight in your neighborhood uh, and you and, and as you described earlier your research was kind of in, in a way meant to understand it. But then eventually you started experimenting yourself. So can you tell us a little bit like how that happened? How, how did you start experimenting? Um, so I should say, um, you know, I have used drugs all my life. Uh, we've gone to parties. You all have gone to parties where somebody has a little cocaine, somebody has some MDMA, uh, somebody has some weed, whatever. And then you, you do some drugs and then you go to work on Monday and Maybe that'll happen again in a couple months, a month, whatever. So that's been in the background of my life. And okay, I, hadn't I, just, really... I just I just want to interject that we're not all that cool. And then, in fact, the parties <laughs> that I get invited to, that I, I would not characterize them that way. But I, I'm sorry. I just needed to put that marker down. And now I will let you continue with your answer. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, Joe well, should speak for himself. When I was in my 20s, uh, I... I Yes. Also, I went okay. to the same kind of Okay. Parties. I get it. You guys are cool. I'm not. That's fine. That's cool. Uh, keep going, please. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it's always been like in the background, but I never really even thought about it as drug use or even thought about even talking about it until I started to really think about writing this book and writing this book. Uh, and then traveling all around the world. I, went, I was uh, on five different continents and hung out with a number of people, some famous people, some uh, uh, governmental officials, business owners, academics, uh, just uh, upstanding citizens. And, um, and then you start, I started to see just how prevalent uh, this is among people. And um, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, uh, we see people who are downtrodden in our society, the people who are looked down upon. Um, for example, someone who uses heroin to inject uh, that we see on the downtown east side in Vancouver or something. Uh, you see this kind of thing. And then uh, those people are different than us. That's how we 
we think about those people. And, and so that caused me to have some cognitive dissonance. Um, and, uh, and I also was thinking about the research participants who I study. Um, uh, you know, people look down on them, including the researchers who are studying them, when in fact they're just doing the same thing that many of these people, including researchers, are doing. Uh, and so all of that sort of, uh, all of those experiences got me to start thinking about who, you know, what kind of guy, what kind of man am I if I'm not like standing up on behalf of those people who are uh, being persecuted for doing exactly the same thing I'm doing. Uh, and so uh, uh, it made me think about my drug use more seriously. Uh, and it also uh, made me think about uh, the lies that we had all been told about marijuana or other drugs. And um, it made me more curious about some of these drugs that we had all been lied about, including heroin. I had, of course, uh, had oxycodone, morphine, and all of these things uh, after some sort of pain or some prescription. Uh, I knew intellectually that heroin and morphine are essentially the same drug. I knew that intellectually. But I never actually, like, done heroin until several years ago. And, uh, but then, you know, after having done some, uh, it's like it's the same thing as morphine, basically. It's the same thing as oxycodone. It's not a... It's not a big deal. Uh, and so uh, it was not uh, uh, something that was hard to reveal. Um, um, in fact, one of the things that uh, I expressed in the book uh, some annoyance to is that the people who are really into psychedelics have embraced those substances while besmirching the users of heroin. And so I wanted to make sure that I called that out and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing the same thing. Um, so, but just to be clear, in the book I said that, you know, uh, it's been five years, I'm now a, a regular heroin user. And I wrote that, uh, I mean, I was finished with that maybe two, uh, two years ago or so. I don't, I don't know when I wrote that. Uh, but um, people seem to think that regular means every day and needle in your arm. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint people, but that's not me. That's not what I do. Uh, I've never injected a drug. I mean, I just, I don't see a need for it because um, uh, people usually inject drugs because uh, they have so little and the quality of drug, the drug is poor and they want to make sure they don't lose any. Um, I mean, if I ever do a drug, it's going to be pharmaceutical grade. And it will be tested. It'll be all of these things. And I don't I'm too vain to put it to maybe damage my uh, my my uh, veins and my arm. I'm, I'm, I'm just, um, you know, that's one of my sort of uh, limitations. I'm, I'm vain in that way. Uh, and so um, I wanted people to know that um, I'm sta I'm here on behalf of the people who have been most vilified. Now, if you want to vilify them, vilify me. Uh, because uh, um, I have some privilege and I can uh, actually uh, defend myself. Uh, and also, you check the record. I mean, um, this year, you know, I will have two books published this year, and I have all of these scientific papers. It's like, shit, if your kids were as successful as me, your kids would be considered a success. You know, so, um, 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 so when people were upset about that, uh, 
um, I, I have no time for that. Uh, they can go and um, uh, uh, talk to somebody. You can else. swear on the show. Oh, yeah, oh, swear that's as great. much as you want. Yeah, that's great. Nuts. That's great. That's great. Um, so, uh, just a quick follow up on that. So, uh, has there been uh, among your colleagues uh, a negative response to to that kind of openness to that admission? Um, I haven't seen it or felt it. Um, um, that might be, but, uh, uh, I, you know, it's like, I, uh, I challenge people to say something to my face, uh, um, and nobody has. Um, and so, uh, I, I don't understand why they would. So. Well, the closest, I mean, it's actually on the, on the jacket of your book. Uh, you got a lot of positive, uh, you know, words, but I noticed that Robert Sapolsky, um, you know, was very, very, you know, very said lots of nice things, but, you know, he made sure to distance himself from, you know, his own opinion from yours. Um, so I don't know if you were pissed off at that or obviously not. Cause you no, put it on the book, I, but, I uh, thought it was perfect because it, it goes to show, you know, it's like, uh, here it is. I'm an expert in this. Here it is. I, you look at my CV, my curriculum vita, and you look at all the things I've done, but our society is so moralistic about this activity. Here's a world-class scientist who has to do what you just said. Um, I think that's just revealing. It's, it's beautiful. Um, um, I don't have to say anything. Anybody who's thinking, um, they get it. So um, I, I want to tell you about like one kind of personal thing that you wrote about that I sort of had a, a strong reaction to, which was you did this experiment on yourself, right? Where you're like, I'm going to take these prescription painkillers for a month. Um, and on top of that, I'm going to sort of use heroin as I always would. And, and then I'm going to stop and just see what happens. And man, like I, I'm somebody who's, I think, very inclined to be sold on like the substance of your argument. But when you were describing the effects and you were like, and then my wife said I should go to the ER because I felt like I was being stabbed in the stomach. And I decided I would just grind up a benzo and snort it in order to fall asleep. I was like, shit, man, this is like, you know, you, it seems like you can get in over your head with this shit like pretty easily, right? Like, so you're obviously qualified, right? You have the knowledge to deal with this stuff. But like, let's say somebody who gets uh, prescribed uh, an opiate painkiller for pain or something, they take it for a couple months, now they're physically dependent and they run the risk of this very severe reaction if they try to stop. I mean, the, that threw me a bit. I was like, man, that, that sounds like sounds like bad news. Yeah. So like if somebody is prescribed an opioid medication for several months and then they abruptly are they discontinue. Uh, first of all, they should be under the care of a physician if they're prescribed these things. And so uh, hopefully their physician is telling them what to do and, and that uh, what to expect. And hopefully if they've been on opioids for several months that they, they're not just abruptly discontinued. I, I just hope that uh, the person who's doing, who's prescribing is responsible. That's one. But let's just say somebody decides to do this on their own and they don't have, I don't know, pharmacological knowledge and they don't know as much as me. That's stupid as fuck. I mean, why would you do that? Uh, and, and I wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't recommend that people do that. And I shouldn't have to tell you not to do that because that's pretty stupid. So, is there a concern that like, you know, you make this stuff more readily available and people just do dumb shit? You know, some percentage of them are going to do dumb shit. They're going to get in over their heads. There's And there's going to be this collateral damage, right? 
where you're like, yeah, that's ill-advised. Nobody should do that, but it's a big country. Lots of people are going to do, do stuff they shouldn't. Yes, that's right. As you know, uh, in our country, your country, uh, we can all have guns and people do stupid shit. Uh, and we live with it because the majority of people who have guns do not do stupid shit. Uh, the majority of people who drive cars, even though in the United States, 40,000 Americans lose their life every year on the road, the majority of drivers don't do stupid shit. And so we live with it and we try to minimize the harm, the, the dangers and all of those things uh, uh, associated with those potentially dangerous activities. Uh, but we don't ban cars and we haven't banned guns. Um, and so, uh, yeah, people will. The, life is not without risk. And if people are asking me to present drugs in a way that there are no risks, I'm not the person to do that because that would be uh, a lie uh, because there are risks. But what I'm arguing is that the benefits outweigh the risk. Yeah, I, I uh, like that you brought up guns, you know, because you you bring up your uh, your views on guns early on in the book and you're like, I'm aware that this is not going to convince any of uh, my liberal readers who probably think that guns ought to be banned or, or uh, much more severely restricted than than they are in, in the US. So I feel like part of this is this like kind of uh, prior moral commitment to a kind of a libertarian philosophy where you have a strong right to do what you want with your body and the government ought only to interfere with that, right? Like under very extreme circumstances. Is that, is that fair? Like as a description of your thinking? Yeah. The only thing that I take some uh, objection to is that, that the libertarians own this. This is uh, quintessentially American. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, uh, in the first few sentences, it guarantees all of us at least three birthrights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, meaning that we can live our, our lives in whatever way we choose as long as we don't bother anybody else. And then in, in, in the next sentence, it says, government should be created for the purpose of securing these rights not restricting them. That's, that's the thing that make, makes us American. And so libertarians don't have a corner on that market. That's an American belief. I don't understand uh, how it's been uh, sacrificed or, or, or given to the libertarians. No, I, it's a belief that I strongly believe in. And, and it's like, if you're responsible, you're doing your thing, why would you want some other idiot telling you what to do? It's, I mean, can you imagine that? This is how I feel. Uh, I have spent my life studying drugs. And now I got some other idiot telling me that I can't do this and telling me why I can't do this. When that person has probably read the work that I published and, and, and studied that in order to get trained. And now they're telling me what to do. That's some shit for your mind. Um, so if you were in charge, if you were like, I, I think I'd be, before I, I asked you about, you know, if you were in charge of NIDA, but if you were in charge of drug policy, um, in, in the U S or, 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 you know, uh, whatever nation that might be, um, what would your version of drug policy look like? What, what would, you know, the Carl Hart regime, uh, be? Well, first of all, I mean, um, 
um, I would make sure that all, all of the drugs that people are seeking, uh, alcohol, uh, uh, cannabis, MDMA, cocaine, heroin, that they would be legally regulated, such that the government would make sure that the, there is a quality control. Uh, these are pure pharmaceutical grade substances, not tainted. Uh, I would also make sure that uh, the unit dose of these things were regulated such that you couldn't overdose or harm yourself with the amount that's put in each dose. So the unit dose would be tightly regulated. Uh, and then, of course, you would have uh, some sort of requirements, whether it's age requirements, competence requirements uh, on, the, on the part of the sellers or whatever before uh, these things could be sold and bought. Um, so, uh, and then we would completely overhaul the way we do drug education. Uh, we would have honest drug education and not scare tactics, uh, uh parading as drug education. Um, and so that's, the, that's like the, the bare bones of it. That's sort of how, uh, that's the main sort of, uh, structure, how it would be. And is there, I mean, actually, I'm, I'm just really, I'm not aware. Is there any play, place on earth that, you know, has what you're describing? Uh, I know in the book you, you, you talk very highly of, of Spain and, and maybe Switzerland, but, um, but yeah, what's that, yeah, what other countries, you know, kind of are, would a, be a model for the U.S. or Canada? Um, there are no countries currently, uh, but, you know, um, uh, I guess uh, 19th century uh, United States uh, was approaching this. And then things changed. So, uh, I mean, I, I know we can probably get in for a long, long time about why things changed. And actually, I think, uh, you know, maybe after the break, we can talk about how things change. And that gets into, I think, the, the topic of race, which is a major theme, of course, in your book. Um, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm done my beer uh, and I wouldn't mind taking a little break. So uh, shall we call it for a couple minutes and we'll come back? Oh, people always ask me what it's like to love everybody, what it's like to love everybody, they ask me. I tell them don't be crazy, there's too many people around me, if I love them all they break me, you see. But if I'm being honest, it feels like each moment is loving every sight. Oh, I love how your looking looks inside. Oh, I'm never changing, but in the reflection reflected in your eyes, well, the magic of being packaged feels amazing to be free in illusion. In an illusion of your making of me To be free In deception In a deception not crafted by me So you see Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at four beers pod. You can at mention us. You can DM us. We both check that account. If you'd rather email our show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Again, that goes to both of us. Finally, our website fourbeers.com where you can find all of our back catalog and drop us a line there as well. Uh, it tends to be a popular option actually to email us 
via the uh, website for some reason. Um, if you're enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. It just helps other people discover the show. Um, Mickey, have I left anything out? No, I think you're good. And I'm actually going to stick to it this time. I won't even add anything. Yeah, you're all good. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So uh, real quick, um, I'm still uh, drinking the makers. I refreshed my pour a little bit. Mickey, what have you got? So actually, I drank this last time, but I, I, I saved this uh, in honor of our guest, uh, who I, I read was from Miami. Uh, so this is called Six Days in Dade. Uh, it's got the, the pink and blue colors of uh, Dade <laughs> County. It's an Imperial Goes with guava, peach, apricot, lactose, and salt, which I enjoyed last time. So Wow. Carl, I, I just want you to know he does not do this for every guest. You're getting <laughs> like special treatment here. Thank you. And you also, you're teaching me. I, I didn't even know that existed. Thank, thank you very much. <laughs> I gotta pour real quick, and then I'll I'll drink. Oh, listen to that sound! All right, so where we left off was um, uh, we started. You, well, you had mentioned that you know, uh, in terms of an ideal place, we'd go back. You know, turn of the century United States, but something happened uh, at the turn of the century, and I wonder if we can get into that. Of course, what happened is race, but you, you detail that a lot in, in in the book. So I wonder if you can tell tell us what the U.S. was like. Um, pre these new new laws and then what happened afterwards yeah just to be clear i i, I wouldn't say the u.s was an ideal place certainly not for black people at that time so <laughs> <laughs> we're only talking so about thesis dr- is, everything was great in the 1800s <laughs> just to be clear <laughs> yeah you're trying to get me in trouble now that's real trouble um yeah it's but in terms of drug policy uh at the time um there were a wide range of psychoactive substances available to people to use uh, that they could go buy from their general store. Um, these substances had uh, anything from an opioid-based uh, compound to cocaine-like uh, or cocaine uh, compounds. And um, there weren't any real moratoriums on them, um, on their use. And um, uh, then something kind of happened uh, in the late uh, 19th century uh, with cocaine, for example. Uh, Coca-Cola uh, started to bottle their, their drink, Coca-Cola. So it was now available in bottles. And uh, before that, it was only available at these fountains. And these fountains uh, were racially uh, well, they forbid black people from um, 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 being at these fountains. So they were only available to white people. And so cocaine was really uh, only available to white people uh, in many places. Uh, but when Coca-Cola bottled cocaine, now cocaine was available to black people um, who just wanted to enjoy the sort of euphoric effects, the energetic effects. Uh, and that upset some white people. Uh, and um, then we started to see these stories uh, being that were wedding or uh, cocaine's use among black people and heinous crimes. So there were stories or reports saying that black people were black males, particularly were uh, raping white women uh, when they had taken cocaine. Uh, black men, they were saying, were unaffected by 32 caliber weapon or bullets. Uh, and that forced southern, southern police, some southern police, to move away from the 32 caliber weapon to a larger weapon, the 38 caliber weapon. Uh, and about the same time, um, the Chinese who had come over to help build the railroads after the Civil War 
um, uh, they uh, had opened opium dens, and these opium dens were frequent by uh, white patrons, um, and some people in the establishment didn't like the mixing of white people and Chinese people. And so we start to see these stories appearing in the press that uh, these uh, opium dens were corrupting good white folks. Uh, and so these forces combined um, eventually uh, to the point where we outlawed cocaine and opioid-based drugs in 1914. Uh, and, and from there, we kind of like started our sort of uh, uh, war on drugs. Uh, we next, in 1937, we banned marijuana, um, um, and uh, we banned marijuana because of its use or associated use with black people and Mexican-Americans. Uh, uh, and so we can see from this history that drugs like cocaine, heroin, uh, marijuana were not banned because of their pharmacological effects. They were banned because of good old American racism. I mean, it, it, it's striking um, when, you know, you mentioned this in the book where there are lots of examples, like prominent examples of like, you know, heroes, heroes of psychology. So Sigmund Freud, right? I mean, famously used cocaine. And, and I don't think we really think of him any worse uh, for it. Um, there's some examples, you know, of... Um, you know, you know, you know, well-known people in the '60s using LSD and heroin. William Burroughs, of course. And again, I don't think we we thought much less of them. But of course, it was a double standard when it came to uh, people of color, um, and that continues to this day, right? So, isn't it just, uh, you know, I, I'm not, you know, born in 1972. I'm a kid of the '80s, and I remember learning and being afraid of of, of crack cocaine. Um, not that I was ever exposed to it or, 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 you know, ever knew anything about it, but it just seemed like I, I remember like this thing, like you tried once, that's it. You're hooked for life. And I think I probably maintained that belief until relatively recently. Um, but, uh, but really this, is there any difference between crack cocaine and powdered cocaine? Yeah. So crack cocaine and powder cocaine are, are essentially the same drug. Um, uh, the only difference is that there's a hydrochloride portion on powder cocaine that's not on crack cocaine. Um, and that hydrochloride portion does not contribute to the biological or pharmacological effects of cocaine. So the, all of the effects are in the cocaine base. And so um, they're the same drug. They are the same drugs. Uh, what we're talking about is a difference in route of administration. Uh, when you smoke a drug, uh, the effects are felt more quickly than when you snort a drug. But you can distill, I mean, you can di di dilute um, uh, powder cocaine in water and inject it intravenously and get the same effect as smoking crack cocaine. And and, and in the 80s, right, there was a, uh, what did you got the, the powder laws where, you know the 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 offense or the 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 penalty for ingesting crack was what was it like a hundred times or it was it was a a much more severe offense for crack cocaine than powdered cocaine and only recently that was repealed. Yeah, so uh, in 1986 we passed laws that punished crack cocaine violations a hundred times more harshly than powder cocaine violations. That is, in order to, well, small amounts of crack cocaine uh, could lead you into jail for a mandatory minimum sentence of five years. Uh, in order to trigger the same sentence for powder cocaine, you had to have a hundred times more uh, powder cocaine. So that's why we say the difference is a uh, hundred times more harshly. Uh, in, in 2010, 
uh, President Obama signed a law that uh, um, lessened the disparities from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. So it, while it, it, it is an improvement, uh, it still is an injustice because the drugs are the same. Uh, it's the only drug that we uh, differentially uh, uh, regulate like that. It's the only drug that we punish more harshly for smoking it as a as a as a compared to taking it via another route of administration. Um, so it still doesn't make sense. Our current law still doesn't make sense. I mean, just straight up racist, right? I mean, like just the way it is. So um, a law, that's horrible. A law itself can't really be racist because technically, uh, white, black, uh, Latino, Asian, you can all be subjected to that law the same. So it's not the law, it's the enforcement of the law. The enforcement of that law has clearly been racist. Um, the overwhelming 80% now uh, since uh, 1986, more than 80% of the people convicted under that law are black, even though black people don't make up the majority of crack users. So uh, one thing that I found really educational in the book is, um, you know, you alluded to already this fear that uh, cocaine caused these like sort of extreme violent behaviors that it could make people who took it almost superhuman. And you pointed this as something that's sort of recurring, like we have these kind of recurring uh, you argue kind of factually ungrounded panics about certain drugs. So when when I was growing up, it was PCP, right? And I remember the SNL sketch where Tracy Morgan was like, I got the ice in me, you know, and the idea is like, you, you like flip out, right? And you hear these stories about this dude, like he's on PCP and he's like punching through the windshield of the cop car and they shoot him 12 times and he doesn't go down. And it's like, it's just like, it kind of gives you this super strength. And then, and then more recently, uh, it was bath salts, you know, and this guy who famously is said to have eaten somebody's face because he was high on bath salts. And, and you, uh, you're pretty uh, strong in saying well, that's just myth, right? Like that, none of that shit actually happens. Is that, am I misquoting you there? No, you're absolutely right. It's all myth. Uh, let's just think about PCP. Um, you, you're familiar with ketamine. So PCP uh, and ketamine are chemical cousins. They produce uh, uh, nearly identical effects. Um, the, they're, they're chemically, they are nearly similar. They're really similar. Uh, but we have these wildly different narratives about both of these drugs. Uh, on the one hand, uh, police stories have said that, oh, if someone's uh, under the influence of PCP, they, ha they will develop superhuman strength. You will need uh, weapons bigger than a 32 caliber weapon to take them down, bigger than a 38 caliber weapon to take them down. You will need to shoot them 38 times or something of that nature. None of that's true. It's the same thing as the Negro cocaine fiend back in 1914. It's exactly the same thing. Bath salts. It's exactly the same thing. Um, the story surrounding the Miami cannibal, if you will, the guy who ate off another guy's face. They said he was on bath salts. When they did the toxicology, they realized they saw that the only thing the guy had in his system was some THC. And the amount of THC that he had in his system, THC, of course, is the active ingredient in marijuana. The amount of THC uh, suggested that the person hadn't smoked for at least 24 hours. So he wasn't under the influence of cannabis either. Um, and so this person, we don't know exactly why he behaved like that. But it wasn't bath salts because he had no bath salts in his system. 
Uh, but these stories, they just keep getting told over and over because they serve an important function uh, in our society. It, they function to uh, scapegoat uh, behavior, uh, scapegoat the be awful behavior of police who engage in police brutality. Um, uh, we say the police had to do that because that person was on PCP or that person was on bath sauce or something else. Um, um, these stories, uh, they, they continue to be told because uh, they also uh, they explain away some other behavior that we can't uh, immediately explain. Uh, but the, the, the fact is, is that uh, it's mostly uh, uh, virtually all myth, all myth. So I, I think this touches on um, something that we definitely wanted to ask you about, which is this sort of differentiation between drugs that sometimes it's, it's much less tied to the biochemistry than you might think, right? So ketamine, I think of as like a party drug for ravers and like basically like a tranquilizer, whereas PCP, if you grew up in the 90s, was like, it makes you crazy. Um, and, and you talk about the differentiation between psychedelics, which you argue are sort of like the respectable drugs for people who go to Burning Man versus the drugs that quote unquote, just make you feel good. So I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I have just been I have been noticing how people who use uh, who are enthusiastic about psychedelics, um, uh, which is fine. Um, uh, psychedelics worked for them to help them achieve some sort of enlightenment, some sort of spiritual uh, journey or uh, help them on their spiritual journey. That's cool. Uh, but those same people uh, were judgmental. And uh, were willing to engage in persecuting, persecuting other people who simply used another substance like cocaine or heroin. And that just seemed uh, illogical and uh, wrong to me. So I, call, I wanted to call that out. I wanted to point out to these folks that um, our classification of drugs are, you know, uh, in large part arbitrary. And uh, many people are doing the, exactly the same thing. They're putting a substance in their body to alter their consciousness for whatever reason. Uh, we can dress it up however we like. I'm on a spiritual journey to be at one, at peace with the universe. Cool. Sounds whatever you, whatever you want to say about that. <laughs> Uh, the person who takes heroin is doing exactly the same thing, but they don't they may not use the same uh, verbal behavior. Um, uh, but again, uh, uh, I just want to fight for everybody's right to do their thing. Yeah. Now, I, I think it's striking, though, how like there's some motivations that are like, you know, kind of respectable. If it's like, oh, I'm doing it to expand my mind. You're like, oh, yeah, no, great. And if you're like, I'm doing it because it feels good. I like feeling good. It's like somehow that's not a good reason to do something, right? And and I think you're kind of right at pointing out like how ridiculous is that? Like it feels good as a great reason to do something. Yeah, and for some reason, uh, our culture, these Western cultures, uh, uh, it's not cool to say that you want to have pleasure and you want to have a good time. You want to feel good. Uh, I, I don't understand that. You know, as I get older, um, that's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to really enjoy myself because when I'm when I enjoy myself, I'm I'm, I'm nicer to other people. Uh, 
I try to be a better citizen, uh, all of those sorts of things. So I don't understand this moratorium on pleasure. I don't. I just don't get it. I, I mean, I I do get it kind of in our because of our sort of puritanical sort of. Uh, ways of thinking. And I talk about that in the book. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think that's kind of baked into uh, being an American. Um, I, I just wanted to say, and we don't have to keep this in, but one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is how you talked about how it sucks to be department chair. And the only thing that made you somewhat tolerable as a department chair is like doing some heroin <laughs> to take the fucking edge off. <laughs> you know, I was like, that's a relatable anecdote to me, you know? Yeah, you know, um, I wanted to just really highlight the hypocrisy of all of this. You know, like we worry about people doing heroin or any other drug. And I had far more damage done to me as being department head than any drug ever has done. Uh, I had to deal with some uh, dishonorable situations, dishonorable people. uh, And then I had to act like they were normal. I mean, that's pathological. And so um, um, I wanted to highlight that in the book. It's like, I don't want to play that game anymore. That's, a, that's a, you know, that's for children. I'm not a child, so I don't want to play that fucking game anymore. That's fair. Um, so I want to go back a little bit, uh, uh, if you don't mind, to the psychedelic stuff. Because um, what I find about the, the, the way people talk about psychedelics, it's like, you know, uh, I was I was subtweeting a philosopher uh, through the podcast account a few weeks ago who was talking about a moral elevation of uh, like psychedelic use. Um, and I kind of said, this is like, you know, I, I agreed with you after reading your, your book. This is, uh, you know, psychedelic exceptionalism. We're seeing it as like something special, something different. It's spiritual. But... Is there, in your estimation, from you know, from your research, you know, uh, whether you know, is there any truth to that? Is there any truth to that? That you know, that psychedelic experiences are particular and different, and allow for a certain kind of spirituality that maybe doesn't exist with heroin or uh, methamphetamine, or is that bullshit? Is it like you can get that spiritual stuff from the other drugs as well? You can get that spiritual stuff from the other drugs as well. That's that's a fact, but uh, it is true that some drugs produce effects that others don't produce and that's that's fine uh but this nonsense that we have about uh oh uh, i'm getting enlightenment with this substance that you know that i'm not that this substance is nowhere near capable of producing that's nonsense um uh, but the thing is is that some people would prefer to have one substance in their quest uh, uh, re- relative to another substance. That's fine. They should be able to do that. Uh, and, and I respect that. But don't come telling me this nonsense that these other people can't also be on their journey with their substance. So this is a tiny bit of a backtrack, but I wanted to make sure that we hit this point because I think this will come up for a lot of our listeners, right? So I, I think a lot of kind of mainstream liberals you know, might be with you, certainly would be with you about the kind of uh, racial disparities in drug laws and drug law enforcement. And and they might want to say something like, well, yeah, we should decriminalize, we should divert people to treatment programs. But, you know, one thing that I see a lot in in left-leaning spaces is really this condemnation of uh, 
opioid manufacturers, particularly Purdue, right, who I think had to pay out like a, a large uh, settlement in order to settle the lawsuits against them. And I would say the mainstream narrative, you like open the times or whatever. And it's like, these people are evil and they killed a bunch of people and life expectancy in some demographics in the US went down for the, this is obviously pre-COVID, went down for the first time in years. And the reason is uh, the opioids that these people were pushing and they killed people. So you you kind of question that narrative in the book and I wonder whether you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I don't really get into the narrative about the drug companies too much. You know, the fact is Purdue and some of the other companies, they uh, downplayed uh, the potential, the, the addiction potential with uh, oxycodone. Uh, and so they, they pay, they're paying a fine for that. So I, I grant that. But the thing where I take exception to is that this notion that um, uh, we found the devil, we found the Hitler here, and the Hitler or the devil is the pharmaceutical company. So I take exception to that. And, and, and because people, um, uh, physicians, uh, the patients and people, they have some responsibility here too. Um, and so, uh, when we have, when we have somebody who we've identified as the devil, then we don't have to look any more, uh, into, uh, an issue. Um, we don't have to look any deeper and we don't learn anything new. We have the enemy. Let's move on. And I think that, that, that would be, um, uh, short-sighted and inaccurate, uh, uh, and incomplete to do, to do that. Uh, but don't, please don't make me defend pharmaceutical companies because we know that they're in it to make money and they're in it to take advantage of their uh, of consumers. That's that's what they do. That's what Nike does. That's what a number of people do. I mean, that's not new in capitalism. Um, and so I, I don't want to defend them. Uh, I just want to make sure it's clear that uh, uh, the liberal sort of interpretation or analysis is incomplete. And uh, I just want to go back to something you said about racial disparities. What I talk about in the book is not racial disparities. Disparities are just differences. What I talk about is racial discrimination. That is this disproportionate negative impact on a specific racial group. That's what I talk about. And, um, and that's what's going on with the enforcement of drug policy. Right, right. No, I think that's a fair point. So when it comes to opiates, would you say that they were overprescribed, that their possible negative consequences weren't managed well? Like what went wrong there? Because I think it's, maybe you disagree, but I think it's clear that something went wrong, right? A, a bunch of people ended up becoming addicted um, to painkillers with negative consequences for them. No, no, no. You said a lot there. So I, I agree that there are some people who uh, overprescribed and they were in it just to make money off of these patients and so forth. That's a fact. And we've had some investigations and some of the investigations have been better than others. But there has been evidence of showing that and that's clear. Now, when we start talking about addiction now, that's a whole, that's a whole different thing now. When we think about addiction, uh, the reasons why people are addicted, they are addicted for a variety of reasons. 
co-occurring psychiatric illnesses, co-occurring sort of pain uh, problems, pain issues, uh, having uh, uh, unrealistic expectations heaped on them, uh, losing uh, good middle-class jobs, uh, um, uh, losing status in a community uh, when once you once had status, a wide range of reasons are why people become addiction, addicted. And addiction requires work on behalf of the person who is addicted. And so they have to be a participant in this, not blaming them, but just making sure people understand that as adults, we all have some responsibility in these things. And our society has some responsibility to make sure people are gainfully employed, to make sure people are having their sort of pain issues treated, their psychiatric issues treated. Make sure we are not placing or heaping unrealistic expectations on members of our society. So we all share some responsibility in this thing. Um, and so it's not as simple as we have been uh, portraying this thing. So one kind of follow-up to that, um, which um, I think it's not so much about the drug companies, um, but it's more this this narrative. I'm not sure if it's a narrative. I mean, I think maybe it's true. I mean, people people talk about this opioid epidemic, right? This this crisis, and just just last weekend uh, in and the the front page of this uh, the Globe and Mail, a, a Canadian uh, national newspaper, talked about you know like the, the thousands of deaths that year uh, uh, due to opioid overdoses, and you know you read like one touching story after the other, and my heart goes out to, to these parents who most of these parents were talking about their children who have uh, overdosed. Um, now, I imagine you must get some angry letters from from parents or from people who respond to you know to to what you're saying here. So, how do you respond? How do you how do you how do you you know speak to a parent uh, who's had a child who's who's maybe overdosed? So, I, I get as as you know, I described in the book parents whose child uh, were uh, who died uh, from what was called the drug overdose. So, I get those parents who come to me for help. And I try and help them understand what, what happened and those kind of things. And so I get many more of those people being supportive. Uh, but there are some people who are uh, upset about what I say. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I get it. Uh, even there are people who, for example, met my criteria for heroin addiction once and now they're uh, uh, um, uh, in recovery, as they say. Even some of them, they get upset uh, what I'm saying, because as I said before, we need drugs as a scapegoat uh, to fill in for things we don't completely understand, to fill in for some of our own shortcomings, to fill in for society's shortcomings. Um, and here I am. Uh, saying that uh, when we think about drug addiction and, and these issues, it ain't the drug. It's all of these other uh, issues that are far more complicated. Uh, I'm taking away from them their explanation. I'm taking away from them um, this thing that excuses uh, some behavior they feel like they will be blamed for. So I feel like we've gotten really heavy um, and I, I, I want to ask you something a little more fun, which is, uh, Mickey is, is a long time weed user, you know, he's, he's been smoking a while he's been smoking on a regular basis and he noticed, um, that you've been studying the effects of cannabis use on, on cognition 
for a while. Um, and he really would like to know uh, how badly has he fucked up his brain? What has he been doing to himself? Well, you know, I can't say anything uh, to Mickey about that, but because I don't, I don't know about his brain, I just can just based say on what... the last hour of conversation, <laughs> you can you can just assume it's low level, you know, damage. Uh, as you know, done. you know, quite frankly, if uh, I was the parent of any of either of you guys, I'd be proud. You know, it's like you're doing this thing. You're talking to me. We're talking about this subject, this intellectual subject. Uh, we're doing it in a way that we hope informs the public and hopes to uh, to help people. Um, who can be upset with that? How, how can someone say that that's uh, um, someone who is not uh, uh, successful, who's a failure, who's not doing a public good? Um, so I really encourage people to just look at the behavior of the people whom you claim to care for. Are they behaving in a way that we expect our adults to behave? Are they uh, taking care of people? Are they contributing to the society? Um, uh, that's the most important thing. That's a really interesting take. Um, I, I really like that. Um, okay, so I, I see we're kind of running out of time, and we've taken a lot of it already. But um, and, and we don't have to keep this in, Carl, if you don't want to, but uh, we have some fun questions uh, to kind of end up. Please, it's your it's your house. What is your favorite drug and why? Uh, that's a hard question. You know, uh, it's like saying, "What's your favorite sexual position and why?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's like uh, um, these things. Uh, it depends on the the moment, the mood, the context, all of those sorts of things. You know, like in some contexts, uh, alcohol is probably the better drug. In other contexts. Um, amphetamines might be a better drug, uh, amphetamines like MDMA in another context, an opioid like a heroin, heroin might be a better drug. It all depends uh, what one is seeking and the context in which one is operating. All right, that's a good, that's a good answer. Um, okay, so I must admit, I, I already have an answer based on what you wrote. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to be able to find this. And again, we don't have to get this in if we don't want. But you described something called 2-APB, um, which you described as MDMA, but better. <laughs> and then actually, the way you described it was you, and this is why I said, you know, the book is a partly about music, because you you have a lot of musical uh, allusions there. And you, 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 you know, you, you said like the difference is like, you know, one version of a song versus a second version of a song. Um, I think by Al Green uh, uh, both times. Um, but, uh, but where could one purchase that? <laughs> Uh, the, the drug that you're talking about is 6-APB. Oh, 6-APB, uh, sorry. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's an amphetamine-based uh, drug, and it's chemically, chemically similar to MDMA. Uh, its effects last uh, longer, um, and they're gentle. Uh, and so uh, I like, uh, that's one of my favorite. Um, um, uh, it's, uh, its legal status in the United States is in a gray area. Um, uh, I think it's actually banned in Canada, but I think the legal status in the United States is in a gray area. And in other countries, um, it's, uh, it may be available legally, um, and people uh, get them uh, uh, this kind of compound from the, through, through the Internet, uh, just like a number of other things. 
All right. I'm, we're going to put a, a link in, in, in the show notes to how to get this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I uh, Googled because likewise, after reading the description of it, I was like, oh, that sounds great. Can I get it? And uh, if I read it correctly, it's not legal in Canada. So yeah, it was an interesting experience, like reading along through the book. Um, and I was putting on the songs, you know, that you were mentioning, um, and really enjoying that. And then I was like, man, so it'd be better if I could also do the drugs that he was mentioning. But sadly, that was that, that was less easy. You know, there's, there's no Spotify <laughs> yet for that. So yeah. Um, so I want to ask about one other drug. So, um, so I'm, uh, so I'm Jewish, but my, my, my mom's side of the family is Yemenite Jews. Um, my, so my grandparents grew up in Yemen and lived most of their lives in Yemen. And, you know, I didn't understand until I was much older, but my, my grandfather, um, as far as I could tell his entire adult life chewed and ate cut, um, which is, I think, very, very popular in uh, Yemen and Somalia as well. Um, and then in the book you mentioned now there's a modern derivative of this called Hex. Um, so I must admit I did try it. So my, my grandfather actually had four cut trees in his, in his, uh, in his property. Um, I tried it and I was just chewing these leaves and it tasted exactly like, like it sounds. It was chewing leaves. I got no effect. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but this Hex sounds very interesting. And so what was, what, what is the effect like? What does that, what does that feel like? Um, so, uh, cut, they all come, they come from cut, um, uh, and uh, this, it, the chemical structure is similar to amphetamines. Um, so you get uh, energy, euphoria, um, even you can get some relaxation. Um, uh, and there are a number of synthetic cathinones. The chemical uh, uh, class is called cathinones. Um, and so uh, when you think about hex, think about cocaine. It produces effects like cocaine. Uh, but the effects last slightly longer than the effects of cocaine. Interesting. I think I, I feel I understand my grandfather a little bit more now. <laughs> well, you know, that's an interesting thing because one of the one of the things hap that happens is like when you want to vilify uh, locals in Yemen, uh, one of the things you say is that they are abusing this plant called cat. So if you pay attention, you'll see the vilification of people who chew cat, which it would be like vilifying people who chew coca leaves. Yeah, I was I, I was just kind of making that connection in my head, right? That like people chew coca leaves commonly, and and so it seems sort of analogous in that you know you can take that and you can sort of extract the active ingredient and sort of take it up a level. What is so, Mickey? You said you tried chewing the leaves and they did nothing for you. What did your grandfather say that it, say that it felt like? Did he describe it at all? But we never. I mean, my you know my my grandfather lived in Israel, so I didn't I didn't really know him that well and. Um, you know, I never really spoke to him that much, to be honest. So I don't think I ever asked him. I asked my, you know, much later, my, my mother and then my grandmother. And then eventually they admitted that, oh, it's a drug and he's taking it, you know, to get high, essentially. Um, but uh, I but no one could describe what it actually felt like. And I never, again, I tried it. I think you probably have to choose certain kinds of leaves, like probably the younger leaves, I'm guessing. Um, anyways, I, I just, I did it and I, and I, nothing happened. So, um I did it wrong, clearly, I guess I've done with many things. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how, how strong the effect is if you're just chewing the leaves. I mean, like, you drink it off coffee. It's like pretty caffeine. Like caffeine. Like caffeine. Yeah, yeah. yeah hmm. I mean, the stuff you're like, the euphoria, energy, relaxation. Like, you drink a strong cup of coffee, like, you definitely feel that way, right? So, I yes. guess that, that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
Okay, I, I, I want to ask you one last question, uh, and then we'll, we'll say goodbye. Um, and uh, so you have one chapter in your book where you describe. I mean, it was almost like a like a like a spy novel. You're you know you're you're in the Philippines, you know, in Duterte's Philippines, and you get this ominous message from someone in the airport about how they're watching you. So can you describe you know even if it was just briefly this. What happened in the Philippines and why you were there? And, and yeah, that must have been crazy scary. Yeah, I, I, I was invited to the Philippines to talk about methamphetamine because Duterte and other officials, uh, they have made uh, methamphetamine users the enemy. Um, so I was asked to come and... Um, speak there uh, about the effects of methamphetamine because I had studied methamphetamine. And so I, I, I just basically kind of stated the state of the scientific literature. Uh, no, methamphetamine doesn't cause these cognitive impairments that uh, some people have stated. No, methamphetamine doesn't shrink the brain of its users. Methamphetamine is a drug that is legally available in the United States for medical purposes, just like amphetamine. Uh, so I say, stated all of these sort of facts, uh, and um, the officials in the Philippines were not happy about that, uh, and I got attacked online by trolls and so forth, and so I went on to a, a, a popular internet show to try to explain, and I thought I'd clarify, nope, it just made it worse, and so I started getting even more messages, so uh, at midnight, uh, like uh, immediately I broke out. I went to the airport and I was uh, I was leaving. And then as I was in the security line, some guy, security guard, walked over to me and basically said, you know, I know who you are. You shouldn't say those things about the president. That's like, you know, fuck you, uh, basically. But he was gone. Uh, but then when I went into the lounge and I opened my computer and I got this message like, Somebody's like, I'm, we know you're in the airport and, you know, I'm going to be the one that takes you out. And I was like, so that kind of fucked me up. And, uh, and I thought, this is real. Uh, uh, well, I'm here now, so nothing happened, but it caused me a great deal of anxiety. Wow. I, I imagine you're not going back to the Philippines anytime soon. No, no. Um, all right. Well, that sounds harrowing. Uh, as it, you know, I think part part of me was like, this is like you know Indiana Jones, but I can imagine this is not. This is yeah. This is not the movies. Um, so now, uh, thank this ain't you. The movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so thank you so much, Carl. This has been so enlightening. Um, I, I and again, I can, you know to our listeners, I can't recommend this book enough. Uh, Drug use for grownups: uh, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. Check it out. It's really worth your time. A great read. Uh, thanks for for coming on the show. Thank you for having me and good luck, guys. And I'll see you soon, hopefully. I hope so. Thank you.